Well, I've never actually seen a desert become lush and filled with flowers before my very eyes, but I have seen a documentary that filmed this in the Sahara Desert. In the beginning, it showed hard, cracked, empty basins that had been watering holes, and they were strewn with dry bones that were the carcasses of animals that had touched their tongues to the last drops of water for miles around before perishing on the spot. And then, once you were convinced that everything was futile, and that there was no possibility of life in this arid climate, gray storm clouds gathered on the horizon and gradually filled the sky, and the first drops of heavy rain fell. The transformation by water was incredible and swift. The land was washed and lush, and green grass sprung up and flowers bloomed. Trees were leafing out in brilliant green. And the regeneration of all things, including the population of the animals. This is Isaiah's description of the salvation of God in chapter 35. He shows us that in the very place and at the very time that nothing is possible, when it seems we have arrived at a complete dead end. There may be some of you here today who feel as though you have arrived at a complete dead end. But it is at that place that God's salvation provides a way of life that is characterized by extraordinary beauty and joy. Isaiah's vision goes on to show that this renewal of life in the wilderness is springing up because of the arrival of the Lord, who brings healing, sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and good news to the poor. The Lord brings justice to the land, Isaiah says, with vengeance, with terrible recompense. And there is the establishment of a highway for God's people, the ransomed ones, to travel to their home in God's kingdom. And then there's this marvelous little detail that says that the, the way is so clear that even fools won't lose their way on that road, which is comforting for those of us who have trouble with directions. It is from this very scripture, Isaiah 35, that Jesus quotes to John the Baptist when he is in prison. At that moment, John must have believed that he was facing a dead end. He'd been arrested by Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great. We remember Herod the Great, the one who had that big construction plan in Israel, and he also, uh, as we recall, inquired of the wise men where the baby Jesus was, and they refused to tell him. They went back another way. Uh, but Herod actually later sent uh, a group of soldiers to kill all the children under the age of two around the city of Bethlehem. Well, Herod Antipas, his son, was equally violent and in addition had seduced his own niece, Herodias, a beautiful woman who was at the time married to Herod Antipas's brother, Philip. It's a bit convoluted because they're all named Herod. But the long and short of it is that John the Baptist was a prophet 
who did not pander to the powerful in order to secure his comfort. He accused Herod Antipas of adultery, and Herod arrested him in response. Well, this was a critical moment for John, and actually for the salvation of the world. John, as we heard, was a hinge. John's role ties the prophetic work of the Old Testament to the work God was about to do through the life of Jesus. And John knew that his call was to pave the way for the Messiah and to point to him when he came. He was the highway builder, and that is what he had done faithfully at great personal cost. He had built up a powerful prophetic ministry, calling out sins, cultural and personal, and offering an opportunity for repentance and baptism. Crowds swarmed around John, but when he saw Jesus at the River Jordan, John publicly passed on the baton. I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? In the fourth gospel, John the Baptist says about Jesus, he must increase, and I must decrease. That's probably something we could all say in our lives. John was the highway builder, but Jesus was the one who would lead the people down that highway. Well, after having fulfilled his mission, passing the baton, John now finds himself in prison. And he is concerned that maybe he got it all wrong. Maybe he pointed to the wrong person. Maybe he had failed at his life's work. What was troubling him? The Bible says, when John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said, are you the one who is to come? Or are we to wait for another? John had expectations about the Messiah that were informed by scripture. Remember, John had described the Messiah as the one who would set things right with the winnowing fork, the one who would burn the chaff with unquenchable fire, the one who would put his axe to the tree that was not bearing fruit. Well, no one more than John knew personally that guilty thugs had not been dealt with yet. He was incarcerated by a violent tyrant who was comfortably situated in his magnificent Grecian palace at Sephorus, surrounded by false prophets lounging around in fine linen and eating the latest delicacies imported from Rome. Where was the fire? So John sends a question to Jesus via his disciples. Are you the one? And back comes this marvelous answer that is quoting from Isaiah 35. You might actually even want to take out your leaflet and look at the Isaiah passage as we compare it when I read how Jesus responds. Jesus says, 
Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who does not take offense at me. Now, some scholars have interpreted this response as sort of a rebuke to John, but that doesn't take into account the high praise Jesus has for John's faithful character and ministry. He says, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John. Jesus isn't rebuking, but he is opening John's eyes to the fullness of salvation that the Messiah was always predicted to bring. As one of the commentaries says, John's knowledge was correct, but incomplete. Jesus quotes all the parts of the prophecy that describe his ministry of healing and restoration. This had been the priority of his messianic mission thus far, preaching and healing, not calling down heavenly fire. And blessed is anyone who does not take offense at me. It is worthwhile engaging our holy imagination to consider what those words would have meant to John as he sat in that dark, dank cell. On the one hand, we can imagine, uh, you know, when you know you have led a life that has been obedient to God, uh, hearing that God's judgment is delayed or might not look like what you want can make you think, well, gosh, is everybody just going to get off scot-free? It can be a kind of um, bitterness about that. But what was the excitement of his disciples as they recounted what they had seen and heard? What was their amazement at the goodness and even the patience of a God whose Messiah ministered with such humility? And then those words, blessed is anyone who does not take offense at me. Perhaps Jesus was speaking to John's understandable impatience that justice in the sense of fulfillment of deserved punishment, of all things set right, with all those consequences, with what Isaiah called terrible recompense, was not the priority of Jesus' work, at least not in the way that John imagined. I want to pause here to clarify that Jesus never says that sin is not sin. Jesus never says that sin does not deserve punishment. Jesus never says that humans are not chronically selfish. And he never says that this is not a problem. But what Jesus reveals to John in his prison cell is that the principal way that God has chosen to deal with sin looks different than what John imagined. The way that God chose to deal with sin, according to the gospel, was to allow his own son, Jesus, to receive the vengeance, the terrible recompense that the world deserved on his own body. 
And that, of course, has been and continues to be an offense to many. It may, may even offend some listening today. But if that is so, this passage is especially important to consider because it highlights the insufficiency of a ministry of healing without the work of truth, which exposes what is wrong on all sides and costly to repair. Jesus reveals to John that God's principal way to deal with sin is to show mercy and offer grace, grace that has as its source, not in divine indifference, but in the passion of our Lord, which we rehearse every Sunday morning in the Eucharistic prayer. But that's jumping ahead because we are in the moment that John is hearing the good news of the fulfillment of God's Messiah. He is hearing about healing, about care for the poor, and about life itself. At the moment when he had thought he was at a dead end, he is seeing in his mind's eye that God is on the move, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, but that his holy way of accomplishing the kingdom was much more patient and merciful than anyone could have imagined. And of course, that is the vision that we also must have as the church. We are the representation of God's ridiculous mercy, of God's unfathomable patience in bringing restoration. But unlike John, who was in a cell, cut off from hearing and seeing, we live in a spirit-infused time. You and I have seen Isaiah's crocuses springing up in a place like Thistle Farms, in a place like Room at the Inn, in a place like Siloam, in a place like EJI, where Brian Stevenson literally fights for prisoners to be set free, in a place like the community dinners offered here on Wednesday nights. This is the greening of a dry land, and it flows directly from the life-giving love of Jesus. So when you come up to the altar today and you receive the body and blood of our Lord, remember that this is given for you not just as a comfort, not even just as forgiveness of sins, both of which it is. But this is the life of God that he has sent into the world through your very body to make this desert a blossoming land. Amen.